Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared, one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. I am very pleased to welcome Michael Mason, director of the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, to BCD's People Art Culture podcast. Michael is responsible for the Smithsonian Folklife Festival on the National Mall, Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, the Ralph Rensler Folklife Archives and Collections, and educational and cultural programs at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. Michael was appointed director at the center in 2013. Previously, he worked at the National Museum of Natural History, which he joined in 1994 as an exhibit developer and co-curator on the African Voices exhibit. In 2007, he became the chief of exhibit development and project management. Then in 2009, the director of exhibitions. Michael first joined the Smithsonian in 1992, working at the Anacostia Community Museum as a researcher and exhibit developer for the Black Mosaic Exhibition. A champion of cultural sustainability, Michael is one of the leaders of the Smithsonian's Recovering Voices Initiative, a signature program of the Consortia for Understanding the American Experience and World Cultures. Michael earned his bachelor's degree in American Studies at the University of Oregon. Trained as a folklorist, he earned his master's and doctorate degrees at Indiana University. He has been studying the cultures of the African diaspora since 1987. His book, Living Santeria, Rituals and Experiences in an Afro-Cuban Religion, was published by the Smithsonian Institution Press in 2002 and nominated for the Victor Turner Award for Ethnographic Writing. It is a pleasure to welcome Michael to BCD's People Our Culture podcast. Michael, thank you so much uh, for joining the People Our Culture podcast. It's a privilege to have you here. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You are most welcome. I would like to dive in with a question that I ask of each guest of the podcast, um, which is, what is culture? How do you define culture? Well, I'll be honest. I find this question sort of intimidating because in my mind, culture is such an expansive concept that it's fairly difficult to define. Most simply, it's the way we see and do things. And I honestly think about it in an everyday way as the interrelated web of meanings and activities that we all engage in as we live together. Um, it, it's both how we act in the world, but also how we make sense of the world. So it, it also functions uh, as a, a filter for how we understand what we're seeing uh, and it helps us formulate how we're going to respond. I mean, to my mind, what makes it so fascinating is that it it bridges everything from the most personal to the most collective aspects of our lives. I often ask people to tell me the story of where they got their name. Almost everybody mm. has a story about how their parents picked their name. Mm -hmm. And that is unbelievably personal. 
and it's a constant. It literally follows you around for most of your life, at least for most of us. And um, sometimes that is very, very personal. Uh, my mother's name is very unusual, and she was named for a very close friend of her mother's, uh, just to use an example in my family. Mm -hmm. In other cases, it goes out to a, a very broad uh, collective uh, set of references. You know, my son's name is Nicholas, um, named after St. Nicholas. So there's this huge range of meanings, even in that very local, very private space. At the other extreme, we have things like... Uh, the 4th of July or the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, which are national celebrations that bring together thousands and thousands, sometimes even millions of people uh, to, to participate in something uh, that's very collective, that, that's uh, reminding us who we are and, and to this larger, you know, our relationship to this larger imagined community. Right. Well, let me say, um, first, that's a very comprehensive answer, and I would expect nothing less. And um, you really touched on a lot there. Um, and you, you may have even touched on um, what I'm about to ask you now, but um, I'll go ahead and ask it anyhow. Um, why does culture matter? Sure. As I said, I think culture matters because it connects the most personal parts of our lives and the most collective parts of our lives. It has to do with how we see the world and how we choose to act upon the world. Much of my own career has been focused on that question. How are people using culture to change their lives, usually for the better? Um, people make very clear decisions about taking on certain kinds of uh, cultural responsibilities and they step into cultural roles. Uh, and and by stepping into those roles, they, they have to engage consistently in certain kinds of cultural activities, behaviors, performances, um, kinds of productivity. Uh, I mean, this is what you know, business business culture is all about, productivity. Um, so, so to my mind, culture matters because everything that we do is within a cultural context and meant to have some kind of effect within that cultural context. So culture allows us to see things in a particular way, and it allows us to make choices about how we're going to act on our worlds. Right. And I know that um, a little later in the conversation, we're going to talk about um, culture and the context of identity. Um, but um, in terms of overall context, um, certainly a factor in culture is um, where you're from um, and place generally. And you were raised in Washington, D.C., a place I lived myself for a few years. Um, what was it like growing up there and um, how did it shape you as a person? Well, I've been very fortunate. I've uh, spent a lot of time uh, in Washington, D.C., and I've spent a lot of time in Havana, Cuba, and they are both fabulous cities. Um, I think growing up here did a number of things for me. It 
sensitized me to difference. Um, you know, I was born in the mid 1960s, uh, and and uh, my parents were both involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, so I became very aware at a very young age of cultural differences and the ways in which those were construed and uh, sadly often used as a way to justify inequality. Um, I, I also, I mean, I, I literally grew up going to the Smithsonian most Sunday afternoons. And so ah. I was fortunate enough to be steeped in an enormous amount of uh, wonderful art and history and culture and science. And um, that certainly had a significant impact on me. And I, you mentioned the power of place. Um, I have a colleague who's written a fair amount about the fact that people tend to bond with the the landscape of their adolescence. And since I grew up here, this place is imprinted on me. And there are certainly um, powerful memories of watching the trees go from gray to black in the wintertime when the, when the cold rain comes or watching the snow come down uh, at night because it was such a treat. It didn't happen that often. And so it always seemed like a, a huge treat. My, every time it's going to snow, my, my wife says, oh, you love the snow, because I do, right? <laughs> Just, you know. So there, there are certainly ways in which uh, this place is imprinted on me. Um, but I think more than that, the social impact and the cultural impact of growing up in this incredibly diverse city, um, as it has, you know, as it was changing uh, fairly dramatically. I mean, over the course of my life, it, it has evolved uh, in in really interesting and, and wonderful ways. So I, I feel very fortunate to live here. I bet. Well, I know from the time that I spent there that the Smithsonian is just really such an anchor um, in, you know, as a resident, I think often people don't tend to um, take advantage of a city's um, offerings. And I know that at the time that I lived there, I was young and I had a lot of friends from college that came to visit. And it was always, you know, we had to go to the Smithsonian. Um, and um, it, it certainly is just such a huge part of Washington, D.C. Um, you may have already touched on this, you know, in, in referring to going there a lot as a child, but was there a pivotal moment when you realized you had a fascination with cultural traditions? So I mentioned that we went to the Smithsonian regularly on Sunday afternoon. And I would say that, you know, I, I was famous for the, I have two older brothers and I always wanted to go to the American History Museum, uh, even as a small child. Um, and so the, the kind of the, 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 the cultural, my, my interest in culture is, is very, very longstanding. I, I went to, on a Boy Scout trip to England and Scotland when I was 12 and, and sort of became mildly obsessed by Scottish culture and read everything that I could learn, everything I could find about it. And, um, you, you know, a, a similar, uh, a, a similar sort of thing happened when I started working on Afro-Cuban culture, uh, in, in college. And, and you know, I worked on that for many, many years and still do to some extent, but, uh, the, the the fascination with a particular place and a particular 
group of people and the way in which they construe the world and make sense of the world and work on the world um, is is really it's been with me for a long time and I'm, I'm similarly intrigued by by the way individuals do that uh, and, and have spent a lot of time um, thinking about uh, uh, depth psychology and social and cultural psychology as well. Mm. Well, Scotland is someplace I happen to be personally obsessed with. And my initial fascination and the reason for my first trip there was because of um, how closely associated they are with the concept of clan and um, belonging. And um, that is a subject that I'm very interested in, um, this concept of belonging. Um, But in any event, You know, what you just shared um, is kind of a nice springboard to my next question, which is um, in 1992, you traveled to Cuba to be initiated as a priest in the um, Santeria religion. And I'm wondering if you can explain what the beliefs of Santeria are and how you came to make that literal and spiritual journey. Well, it's important to say from the very beginning that... um, Santeria, or the 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 Lukumi tradition, as it's more specifically known, is an incredibly rich and complex tradition. Uh, there are um, musical forms that people spend an entire life trying to master. There's a a, a a corpus of divination stories that is literally uh, thousands and thousands of stories and proverbs. Um, w- which again, people spend their entire lives trying to uh, understand and 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 uh, perform in culturally appropriate ways. Um, so so it, it's very difficult to summarize the tradition quickly, um, but I will try. Okay, fair um, enough. Uh, the religion revolves around intimate, ongoing social interactions between people and spirits. And uh, some of those spirits are ancestral spirits, and some of those are um, what the average North American might refer to as gods or deities um, who who are called Orishas. Um, The Orishas are associated strongly with different uh, parts of the natural world and with different aspects of human life. And um, each person is believed to have a, uh, a patron deity or, uh, who kind of rules their, their life and is sort of becomes the kind of core of their personality, if you will, or often does. Um, th- those social interactions revolve around three large categories of, of ritual. Um, th- there are... Uh, there's divination where people are seeking information from the spirits about uh, what's going on in their lives and, and how to improve their circumstances. There are uh, rituals, ritual offerings where people are uh, offering uh, all kinds of things, but generally food. Uh, and, and drink to the spirits to um, 
please them and to encourage them to um, be generous with the humans. Uh, and, and then there's a whole group of rituals around um, spirit possession where the, the spirits or the Orishas come into the body of, of some of the, their followers uh, to communicate more directly. Mm. Um, the tradition actually exists in, in a huge number of variants uh, and, and uh, that also makes it tremendously interesting because th there are similarities, there are continuities to be sure, uh, and, and there are also an enormous number of differences. So um, as a scholar, that makes it, it very interesting. Um, but that gives you some sense of it, that the, the real, in many ways, the a primary focus, and I don't want to say the primary focus because it is lived in so many different ways, but a primary focus is this interaction between a, a, a person and their primary deity. So does, would you say that that makes it personal? There, there are many things that make it personal. That's one of the things that makes it personal. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and you kind of touched on both dimensions of your, um, your involvement, but what are the challenges of being both a practitioner and a scholar? Um, and are there life lessons to being, you know, both a participant and an observer? Well, it, it's worth mentioning that ethnography, that is the, the documentation of uh, people's cultural lives, it, it has used participant observation as a primary method for uh, decades. And there are whole libraries full of books talking that, that discuss the challenges of that. I think in my particular case, um, I have found the the community of Orisha practitioners to be very welcoming, um, and I have been very fortunate to have very generous teachers in that tradition, um, and they, my teachers, know that I am both a scholar and a practitioner, and my primary teachers have supported me in that. Uh, it's worth mentioning that in the tradition, if someone is going to become a master of ceremonies, because there are so many ceremonies and they are so complex, people in Cuba are very fond of saying, this is like an academic career. This is like studying to be a doctor. Mm. And so anybody who is going to take on a significant leadership role is going to have to study. And so it's not, it isn't strange for someone to be studying uh, and approach it in a, in a kind of studious way. Um, so I, I have been very, I feel like I have been very fortunate. I have good working relationships with all of the, all of my elders. Um, and, you know, I, I interact with them regularly, um, you know, on, you know, with phone calls and texts and emails and uh, and you know face to face visits, because um, so it's um, in my case I, I don't think it's been particularly difficult. There, the you know as a as a young scholar there was there were some 
people in the scholarly community who were uncomfortable with this this double positionality, but I, that's mostly gone away, I think, in the discipline as a whole. Um, and and you know, one of the beauties of the kind of work that I do is that if if I if I have a an intellectual question, I can go talk to a whole range of people to find out their perspective on the answer. Um, and and to me, that process of discovery, uh, which is essential to scholarship, is also an aspect of the Santeria tradition, uh, where there are stories of uh, important diviners traveling to other towns to learn new divination stories and new ceremonies. So uh, the 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 curious traveler who is in search of knowledge is something that exists in both cultures. That's great. And I love that. I mean, I am a curious traveler and I can't think of a better way to live. Um, it, everything is, um, you know, there's always something new to learn and more to discover. And I think it's wonderful to have your your avocation and your vocation and your spiritual life kind of be able to um, have a focal point. Um, now, you've written extensively about the religion and culture of the African diaspora, um, and your research is focused on the processes through which people deploy elements of cultural heritage to construct their personal histories and identities. And this is fascinating to me, um, and it's kind of a concept that I'm familiar with, and I know that my own perceptions of my Irish lineage have influenced how I see myself as an individual, um, and in fact have driven many of my life choices, including being a storyteller. So I'd love to hear um, how this process has revealed itself in your own life and, you know, what are some of the ways you have, have observed it in others? Well, I mean, I, I was just talking about some of the ways that I've, uh, it's impacted my own life. And I, I'm fortunate to have choose, chosen these two paths where there is a, a kind of a, a similar role for me in both. And, people in both traditions can make sense of me. Um, and, and my own path has been very much to be living on sort of cultural frontiers, which I'm very comfortable with. Uh, and, and most of my professional life has been about translating complex uh, intellectual ideas to the public uh, in museum settings, right? So um, th there's a, there's a, a similar set of skills that work across those different practices. I suppose um, it, 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 I'm a little less comfortable kind of diving into the, somebody else's story just because it, it might be a little complex, but I think, you know, I, I've written some about um, uh, this wonderfully creative move that, um, the the people in Catalonia took when they were trying to get attention for their desire to have a referendum. Um, Catalonia and northeastern Spain, you know, has been uh, pushing for independence um, for some time. And uh, a number of years ago, I guess in 2014, I think, they, they organized a, um, 
a campaign across Europe to build human towers, which is a very old tradition in Catalonia. A group of Catalans decided to erect human towers in eight cities across Europe and simply hold up signs that said, human towers for uh, democracy, Catalans want to vote. And I, I thought that that was a particularly clever move on their part because they were using a very popular form of traditional culture, these human towers, which they call castes, um, which means castles, uh, to, to draw attention to uh, a political desire. And, and that's a kind of very contemporary example of people using uh, cultural expressions to work on their worlds. And I, I honestly think about it more in terms of working on your on their worlds and, and rather than constructing their worlds right there that, that's a kind of strategic way of taking a cultural expression translating it across into a political space uh and and raising consciousness about a struggle that they're involved in um and that i think is a is particularly creative um they're 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 countless examples of this around the world. And um, I think that this way in which people use uh, cultural resources um, as, as tools to make interventions in their lives to seek changes that are important to them is, is really quite interesting. And, um, you know, uh, uh, culture includes things like um, political heritage and uh, social institutions as as much as it, it involves proverbs and um, stories. I mean, think of the, you were mentioning your own Irish heritage, and, and think of all of the stories uh, about um, the struggles for, for uh, Irish independence and the ways in which those uh, uh, seep into traditional storytelling and uh, ballads that people are singing in uh in pubs and uh, you know that the social life is a very very broad swath of activity everything that humans do yes well it's interesting i'm really glad i asked the question because i think you know my own take on it had been somewhat different which was more that my my heritage was influencing who i was as a person as opposed to using my heritage as a catalyst to accomplish something. And, you know, coming from a, a background in corporate communications and, and hearing you describe the human towers, I mean, you know, one could say that that was a very effective PR campaign. Um, you know, that's the elements that are needed, um, you know, to really humanize a cause. Um, so, it's interesting. It's um, in in that oh. case they they were certainly trying to raise awareness, um, which is a, a you know consciousness raising is a first step in many political movements. Um, I do think it works the other way though as well um, as you described um, that that uh, having a sense of where you came from and the a kind of uh, continuity for certain activities um matters to people um it, it it really really does i mean i um i 
I have been very for fortunate. I've studied rituals all over the world. I'm responsible for, uh, you know, a national celebration on the Mall of the United States every year, which is an incredible honor. And um, and the truth is that the most important rituals in my life are making dinner for my family and eating with them and, and reading to my kids as they're going to bed, right? Mm. <laughs> which are tremendously mundane on one level and incredibly pregnant with meaning on other, on another level. Um, Absolutely. And, and um, you know, I, I uh, just to use another personal example, I mean, my, my son recently came home from college and uh, asked me if I would cook for a friend of his. Uh, they were going out to museums during the day and, and he asked me if I would cook for them. I was thrilled because it meant somehow that, you know, the, the, he, he identifies home with, with good food cooked by his parents. And he, he wanted to share that with this dear friend of his. Yes. That's a high accolade. Indeed. I was pleased as I said. Yes. And I mean, that kind of goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning that, that culture is personal and it's universal and it is quite a spectrum. Um, and on that note, I want to um, delve into um, the, you know, um, your role as a curator. Um, and uh, I believe you've curated more than 60 exhibits. And, um, you know, my personal feeling is these days, uh, the phrase curated content has become kind of an overused um um, cliche in the world of the web, um, and I think the role of an actual curator is something that would be of interest to a lot of people in terms of, you know, what's involved with um, constructing an exhibit, starting with um, how you identify a subject or a theme as warranting, um, you know, putting the resources behind an exhibit, and how the pieces are selected. Um, as well as some of some of the practical considerations um, and the nuances, is this something that you could um, share with us? So th that that is an enormous set of questions. Um, and and <laughs> sorry, it's all right. Uh, again, there are um, you know one can one can pursue a, a degree program in uh, museum studies and focus on exhibit development. I think um, as I have. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to to participate in many different roles in in many many exhibits, and I, I think that it really there are all kinds of considerations. But at its core, an exhibition is an exercise in communication, and so you have to be very clear about what the big message is that you're trying to get across, and. Uh, there are different ways that people articulate those messages, but ideally everybody working on it will be able to use a single sentence or two that are pretty similar that explains what the exhibition is about. Um, and from there, it really is, and I've said this at kickoff meetings for exhibits for years, it really is like high school composition class. It's an exercise in unity. <laughs> and <laughs> everything that goes into that exhibition needs to support 
the big idea of that exhibition. Every piece of text, every object, every graphic, every interactive experience, every piece of media. And if you're, if you're working with talented exhibit designers, every piece of design needs to, every piece of design actually needs to, to connect with that big idea as well. Um, Obviously, contemporary exhibitions require an enormous number of intellectual disciplines and professional disciplines to to bring them to fruition. You have exhibit designers, you have writers, you have media experts, uh, you have uh, creative construction people who are are you know building the physical structure. Um, you have conservators who are taking care of the objects, and each of those disciplines brings expertise and particular preoccupations to the conversation. And uh, the 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 delight in my mind is is working hard to bring all of those people to move in the same direction, to create something for a public that really resonates, uh, that, that tells a story in a way that's compelling. Mm. And um, what are some of the, um, the kind of practical considerations? I mean, for the average person who might be a museum goer and just experiences the, the net result of all the work that's gone into it. Um, you know, are you able to kind of share, to break it down a little bit and share some of the different kinds of um, roles that people have um, and, you know, what goes into the, the physical construction as well as the, maybe not so much the conceptual, but the the actual manifesting of the exhibit in a physical sense? Sure. Um, so I, I, I just spoke about many of the different roles that that come together on an exhibition team, and m most large museums now develop exhibitions in teams, precisely because we all recognize that it takes so many different kinds of expertise uh, to to make a compelling exhibition experience. Um, really, if you're an exhibition team is trying to design an experience for the visitor that will convey big ideas. And the, the process is, uh, requires an enormous amount of intellectual work and also an enormous amount of social or, if you will, political work, because you have to get all of those people moving in the same direction. Most exhibitions uh, require uh, dedicated fundraising activities. So you have to have people who are able to articulate the impact and the importance of the exhibition for the public uh, so that you can excite funders. You, you have to have uh, folks who are thinking about the way people move through space uh, as they're designing the three-dimensional space. You need graphic designers who are laying out text panels. Um, one of the great challenges of the Smithsonian uh, exhibits world is is durability uh, natural history where I worked for many years uh, gets between seven and eight million visitors a year and um, that many people are uh, moving through a very old building uh, it was built in 1910 uh, 
create a lot of wear and tear on the exhibits themselves. So there's a, an, a constant conversation about, about materials and durability uh, and maintenance, uh, which are not the sexy and interesting parts, but they're very, very important. Um, and the same is true uh, with computer interactives and media, um, because those things require, uh, you know, electronics to support them. Those electronics wear out and have to be replaced. Uh, so you're you're really looking at a, a whole range of interlocking uh, skill sets that come together to make this experience. And it's right. really fun. <laughs> I bet it's fun. Well, it's um, it's very creative on so many different levels. I just have one other question um, as it relates to this, and it's, you know, how are the objects chosen? I mean, I'm just, to my mind, you know, even when you crystallize a very clear, defined theme, you know, there are just so many different ways um, that you could interpret that and, you know, bring it to life with whatever the, the physical objects in the exhibit are. And of course, now that we have interactivity and um, uh, you know, the ability for artificial intelligence to be incorporated into an exhibit, it just seems to me that it would be kind of an overwhelming job to determine, you know, how do you bring this concept to life? Well, so it, it's um, part of what you think about is which medium of communication is the most effective to convey a particular idea or set of ideas. And so obviously, you know, some things lend themselves to, to you know, a, a, a theater experience where people are essentially watching a movie within an exhibition. Others are, are highly interactive and the goal is to, to help people think through uh, the ways in which scientists put together pieces of evidence to come to conclusions. Um, in other cases, you're trying to give people physical experiences. So we think about different kinds of visitors um, as well, and and visitors have pretty clearly established preferences, which we have professional language to talk about in various ways. But um, you know, often it, it gets boiled down to people, people, idea, people. Object people and people who are looking for physical experiences, and so you you can think about how those different kinds of experiences are spread across the space. You asked about the way in which we cho choose objects, and uh, again, there are a variety of issues. Obviously, we have uh, you know museums have as a primary preoccupation the preservation of their collections, and so one of the first questions is can this object be displayed safely for a period of time uh, without without exposing it to too much risk? Um, but after that, it's it really is, again, a question of unity. Does this object help us tell the story? And if so, how? Um, and it, that if when we approach it from that point of view, you can actually end up with really quite surprising juxtapositions sometimes. Um, and you, you may have 
an object that was created by an early hominid species next to a reconstruction of what that hominid looked like, for example, um, where one of those objects is is a museum, uh, is part of a museum collection, and the other is, uh, you know, a, a very, very accurate representation of that species based on the very best scientific knowledge, but, uh, you know, not part of the collection. Um, so it, it really is... Um, a process of thinking about the visitor experience and thinking about the story that you're trying to tell. And uh, usually there are more ideas than there is money and space. And so you end up with, a you know, you start with a list of you know, 500 objects and you can only put 200 of them on display. <laughs> right. I'm just making up those numbers, but you know, it, it, there is always a process of, uh, having to take things out because you're trying to get the message as clear as possible and because of the the costs uh, involved in conserving and and presenting objects safely to the public right so in a way some of those decisions can be made for you almost be, when you factor in just reality and, and what's achievable and affordable yeah i mean that there there is um there is always a part of the process and, and there is always a project manager in the mix who is keeping track of what everything costs. And that is absolutely right. I mean, I've worked on exhibits where there were tremendously dynamic objects that we wanted to bring that we couldn't bring because of the, the cost of packing and shipping or the cost of insuring them once they were, you know, during their transit and, and during their stay at the museum. Um, I mean, the Smithsonian, fewer of those issues because we have an enormous collection of our own. But even even so, we're constantly borrowing things from other institutions to tell stories really effectively. Mm. And um, this is a great segue into my next question, which is um, you've led the development of the center's cultural sustainability initiatives, which is a shift away from an approach focused on preservation to one that is more dynamic. Can you tell us about the inspiration for the shift and what some of those initiatives are? Sure. Um, the, the, the field of uh, folklore in the United States uh, has, has really been focused on working closely with communities as the owners of their own cultural heritage uh, for decades. And that approach was ultimately uh, written into UNESCO's 2003 Convention on the Preservation, the Safeguarding of cultural, Intangible Cultural Heritage, uh, and, and is really now a, a, a norm uh, in, 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 in cultural heritage practice. When I came to the center in 2013, all of, and I was getting to know the work in more detail and, and getting to know my colleagues here, uh, I, I really, I can't tell you how many times I heard people say, well, we do X, Y, and Z, but the most important we, work we do is the work with communities. And I looked at the budget and there was nobody there was no budget line for this. And I looked at the staff list and there was nobody whose job this was all the time. And so it seemed like a very natural thing to do to create a group of people who were working consistently with communities um, 
and and without the obligation of a public facing programming program like the Smithsonian Folklife Festival or a, a, a recording uh, of the kind that we make with Smithsonian Folkways recordings, but an even a space of even greater freedom where we could actually work closely with communities to help them document, research, preserve, sustain, and present the culture that matters most to them. And uh, it's been terrifically rewarding. We're currently working in Armenia, Bhutan, uh, and and China, and, and six countries in Europe. Uh, the, the, the work is important, I think, because it really is about us bringing practices from around the world, uh, bringing expertise, bringing uh, resources of various kinds to communities and, and helping them get clear about how they want to manage their own cultural heritage. Uh, so I, I jokingly call it helping professions for, the, for, the, for different cultural communities. But to a large extent, that's what the work is. Uh, and we have part of what we bring is a is a set of tools for helping the community find clarity about what it wants to do, uh, and so we're we're tremendously excited about this work, and it it has a bunch of practical expressions. We're we're working on uh, on on language in a number of places. We're working on craft in a whole number of places. Um, we're working with indigenous media groups, um, and if tomorrow somebody's, we started working with a community that said, none of those things are right for us. We think that we need something else. We would work with them to develop that, that something else. Mm. You know, I'm so struck by the beginning of your answer when you talked about, you know, coming in, um, you know. I know you weren't an outsider per se, but, um, you know, as someone somewhat from the, the outside and you're hearing people define themselves over and over again, and you're able to pick up on that. And I do think that sometimes, um, you know, being on the outside looking in, you can see something about a people or um, a need or a situation um, that the objectivity um, can make very crystal clear, whereas, um, you know, sometimes within uh, that need or that uh, priority can get kind of uh, assumed, but not necessarily acted on. Michael, the Smithsonian's Recovering Voices program seeks to revitalize and sustain endangered languages and knowledge and to understand the dynamics of intergenerational knowledge transfer. Can you tell us about this program and also share your point of view on the impact of technology on the transmission of culture from one generation to the, to the next? Sure. So Recovering Voices um, is a collaboration between the National Museum of Natural History, the National Museum of the American Indian, and the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. And it, it began in 2009. We're really focused on kind of a set of interlocking uh, activities. We're, we're working hard to understand 
how language loss works and what works uh, in in language revitalization. Um, so, and and one key aspect of that is is actually proactively looking at revitalization programs and uh, exploring the factors that uh, have impacted them. Uh, another it has to do with engaging communities with collections at the Smithsonian as a way to facilitate conversation around kinds of objects and activities which may have uh, gone out of use. Um, we're very involved in, in changing the public dialogue about endangered languages and, and bringing this challenge uh, to the awareness of the general public. Uh, it, there are about 7,000 languages spoken in the world at the moment, and we expect between 50 and 90% of those to go silent in the next 80 years. So we're really looking at a, a, a serious shift, a serious loss of language diversity. There's always a shift. I mean, language shift is something that happens quite naturally, but this is a precipitous change that's completely out of line with, with anything we've ever seen before. Uh, so raising this into people's awareness is incredibly important. And then we're, we're doing a, a lot of work engaging with community organizations uh, to support efforts that they're doing in, in various ways. Uh, and it's unbelievably exciting work uh, because what we are in many, many cases doing is working with people who have in their own communities in identified the challenge and have been working at this for a long time. So we're in some ways helping, uh, we're part of the connective tissue that brings together these uh, language activists in their own communities with this larger international movement, uh, which is, I wouldn't say that it's invisible, but it, it isn't uh, always obvious. Yes, well, it's interesting. Um, this is a subject that's kind of near and dear to my heart, despite the fact that I only speak one language, English, much to my, my shame. Um, but I traveled to Estonia a number of years ago on the 20th anniversary of their break from the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, I learned that they had not been able to um, speak their language while they were part of the Soviet Union and, um, you know, officially. And um, that... Um, if a language is spoken by less than a million people, it is considered on its way to being extinct. And then I later interviewed the linguist Michael Krauss, um, who was the one that, uh, you know, formulated that standard. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, remarkable when you think about the globalization that's occurred and, um, you know, the... Um, this manner of communicating just being, you know, just going by the wayside. I mean, that statistic that you cite is mind blowing, you know, and just in terms of what, what a huge chunk of culture uh, is going by the wayside. Um, are you able to um, kind of talk about um, the impact of technology on transmission of culture from one generation to the next? Well, so yeah. The truth is that technology sometimes plays a very positive role and sometimes it plays a very negative role. Um, there are languages um, that are 
kept alive because communities are communicating via text message and telephone, uh, and, and they wouldn't have anybody to talk to if they were not able to use technology to connect. There are other communities wow. that have been using uh, things like cell phone apps to teach their language. Um, I believe, for example, you can learn Navajo on the Duolingo app, for example, and Hawaiian, um, which are both endangered languages. So, I mean, I think there's there's um, there's a real opportunity uh, to to use those tools to keep languages in use. On the other hand, uh, we know that because media is such a major part of the cultural landscape at the moment. Uh, language, you know, the media is created in the dominant languages of the world, and that makes their use more and more prevalent. Uh, and so, really, it, it has much more to do with how you're using technology than technology per se. Right, that's true. Um, now, uh, I just want to ask you from a personal perspective, was there a piece of, of cultural heritage that was transmitted to you by your parents that you could single out as, because part of my interest in language is just the fact that, you know, it typically is handed down from one generation to the next. And I am interested in, you know, intergenerational, um, you know, uh, transmission of culture. But is there some recollection you have of feeling like your parents were really giving you a piece of their culture? So I would have to say that um, the family dinner is uh, probably the most important ritual uh, cultural practice in my, uh, my immediate family now and was also the case when I was growing up. Uh, we ate together regularly and in fact my uh, my brothers who are both older than I am and I go with our families regularly still to my mother's house and eat together um, so the, the 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 process of socializing and sharing news and creating something together and sharing that and then cleaning up together is um, I would say the most important ritual in my life, honestly. I mean, and, mm. uh, I'm, I'm able to, I've had a very rich life with lots of ritual and festival. And that is undoubtedly the one that I am engaged in most consistently and most often. Hmm. Well, I think it is, you know, the, the fabric of culture is really all about connection. And that certainly is kind of the quintessential for a lot of people is, you know, breaking bread. Um, in my family, there was a tradition of having a, 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 we're sort of nerdy, I suppose, but there was a tradition of having a, an unabridged dictionary somewhere near the dinner table. And the only reason that you could get up was well, to go look up a word. <laughs> so You know what? You're talking to a fellow nerd. My father, until I graduated from high school, made me look up 10 words in the dictionary a night and write them out. And it, it was a, a ritual that I loved, you know, like I really, I just have a fascination with kind of, you know, the vocabulary, like there's so many different ways to describe different things, but that's something he gave me. Yeah, that's um, wonderful. Cool. Um, 
Now on to the next question. Um, a large part of the Smithsonian's mission is to increase the visibility and vitality of culture bearers, artists, and traditions to promote cultural expression as essential to human well-being and community health. Why is this expression so essential and what are the threats and opportunities today? And I see, I, I, once again, you like the multiple question. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. So um, I need to, I need to uh, break it down a little bit more than that. Um, I mean, I think- That's fine. So we certainly are all about uh, providing this visibility because we recognize that it's essential to, to well-being. Um, I mean, that's increasingly well documented. Uh, there's evidence that it, uh, people who are engaged in, in, the, in their culture of origin are more resilient in all kinds of different ways, that they suffer from fewer kinds of um, physical and mental illnesses, and that's incredibly compelling, <laughs> and that, and that's true if you know you're involved in really in almost any kind of um, community-based art. Uh, obviously, there's a lot known about the the fact that uh, a strong social network is beneficial to people's health, uh, and uh, this is one way that I would argue that there's people kind of maintain and extend their social networks. Um, and we know that uh, there's a kind of fundamental opportunity here. Self-expression, when it's done respectfully, is an incredibly powerful tool. I mean, this is the, in some ways, we, we live in the perfect folkloric age where story is everything. Um, people sharing their stories with each other is incredibly powerful. Um, as a as a regulator of one's own well-being, as a, for providing a sense of being seen in the psychological sense, and and also in the sense of sharing experience and and motivating others to redress challenges. Uh, so it, for many people, you know, storytelling becomes a, a first step in consciousness raising in political movements. Um, that storytelling, whether it's uh, someone talking about how they learned to play the fiddle or learn to build human towers or talking about uh, living through some traumatic historic, historic experience, um, that sharing creates a human connection, as you've said, that's tremendously powerful and, and often leads to new relationships and to new motivations in the people who hear those stories. Mm, very true. And what do you see as the threats and opportunities today, um, given this, uh, the importance of this? Threats and opportunities to um to um you know promoting cultural expression as essential to human well-being um you know are there societal forces at work that maybe um prevent that kind of um 
exchange leading to well-being or, I mean, you know, the thing that comes to my mind um, immediately, for example, is social media. I mean, you know, there's the one dimension of it that it's it's connecting people that might otherwise not ever connect. On the other hand, you know, you're behind a computer screen. So I guess, you know, um, just the idea of, of um, expression being so important to well-being and are there particular challenges or opportunities today that are presented either by, you know, whether it be globalization or technology? Sure. So, I mean, globalization brings all kinds of blessings and all kinds of challenges, it seems to me. And uh, that's, you know, sort of communications technologies are a part of that. You know, as I said before, I think the, the, the issue is really how you're using it. If you're, you know, there, there are some people who share consistently uh, about their creative endeavors and uh, use those tools to, you know, share the stories of their own lives and of their communities. And I think that can be very, very powerful. And we try to do that here uh, through a whole range of digital outreach strategies. Uh, and it, it is also true that you can have, you can spend all of your time consuming culture that other people have created and that um, probably in the long run does not help with social connection and a, a strong sense of community. So the, so a give and take is important. Yeah, I would say so. Mm-hmm. That's true of most things. Yeah. I would agree. And, but you raise an interesting point about there are people that are just consumers, really, and aren't necessarily creators. Um, in that space, right. Right. Um, I think, uh, you know, conversely, there are, there are all kinds of new forms of expression that are available to people. I have a 10-year-old daughter who makes movies, which I was certainly not capable of doing when I was 10. Right. Um, you know, makes makes movies that have complex stories and sometimes last as long as twenty minutes. Wow. Um, you know, so she's she's actually using the media and the technology that's available to her as a as a creative uh, tool, um, and and building relationships with it, not just with us, but you know, she's just starting to experiment. Uh, you know, she has a secret identity on the internet and shares her movies. Um, that's wild. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's slightly unnerving as a parent, I would say, but uh, but, but, it's the, exciting. but the creativity, right? I mean, she's exactly, and and you know, I've been very fortunate in in my very varied career to to have made a lot of movies for uh, different museum exhibitions and 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 here as well. Um, and, and I have to say, it's something that I absolutely love. It's been some of my favorite work. Uh, so I, I completely understand her excitement about using that medium to share stories. Um, so I, it, it is, it's a fascinating thing to watch. Um, well, because you're dealing with um, different senses. Um, you know, as much as I love the written word, um, it, it does not convey the same 
sensory experience as as video. Um, but um, that's that's great. Um, now, um, I learned through um, the center's website that the number of international immigrants, uh, so that's people living in a country other than where they were born, has increased 41% since 2000. Um, and people, ideas, and cultures now interact at a, a vastly accelerated pace made possible by increased mobility and new technologies. Um, and it's a process that fosters tremendous creativity, but not without certain apprehensions. Um, can you speak to this in terms of um, the center's work? Sure. We have been working on issues around immigration and migration for our entire 52-year existence. And there's, there's no question that the movement of people and ideas and cultural traditions uh, it is happening happening faster than it was 50 years ago. It was happening then too, of course. It's always happened, but um, there are all kinds of new opportunities and there are people who are uncomfortable uh, with the change or with the rate of change or in some cases with the things that are changing. Um, you know, I, I've, I've done a, an enormous amount of work in, in Catalonia where people are very focused on maintaining their language and also maintaining a certain shared sense of values. Uh, and that's a tremendously subtle thing that they spend a lot of time talking about and trying to figure out how to uh, communicate without being rigid or or um, exclusionary in any way. And in Catalonia, Catalonia has um, received something on the order of a million newcomers in the last 10 years in a population that is about seven and a half million people. So an enormous number of people have arrived there. Um, you know, I think that this is some of the, you know, there's certainly apprehensions in the United States uh, historically every time there's a new wave of a significant new wave of immigration and any kind of economic challenge which is of course also cyclical um, those apprehensions tend to have to do with uh, the rate of change uh, everybody seems to understand that the world changes. It's a question of how quickly and how do those changes affect the individual and their community, their family and, and their community. And I think we, there's no question that the, this is probably the cultural challenge of the 21st century. Um, how do we select which parts of which cultural traditions we're going to hold on to as the world uh, reorganizes itself at a fairly quick pace. Um, and, you know, that's language, it's cultural traditions, it's values. Uh, and um, it's fascinating to me that there are so many people in the world of so many different backgrounds and different classes and uh, positions in different societies that really see 
a value in thinking about what really matters to them that they can be proud of, that they can own as an important part of their culture and and hold it up as something that they want to hold on to and, um, and, and identify with even in this more complex world uh, and, and doing that in a way that is um, celebrating their own cultural history and heritage at the same time that they're respecting the differences and, and values of, and rights really of, of other people. It's a fascinating moment for precisely this reason. Things are changing with such speed and people are having to ask themselves really again and again, what pieces of my culture really matter to me and how do I continue them and how can I communicate why they matter to me and to my community in a way that I can help other people understand right. why they matter so much. Right. It's interesting. You know, I, I agree and I perceive everything that you've just uh, said in my own experience. Um, but I also think there's kind of a flip side to it that, you know, in today's day and age, um, it's kind of like the world is your oyster as far as there are all these traditions you can adopt, um, you know, or embrace or participate in um, that may not be part of your heritage, but, you know, that that part of globalization um, to the extent that it doesn't dilute culture is that we get to see how other people live. And, um, you know, there, you know, I think there's a finite, number of values, but the way they are expressed um, is so varied. Um, and I'm also thinking about um, Armenia, which I know the um, Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage has a, has a program um, around. And I went to Armenia um, last summer, and um, they have kind of like the opposite problem that you know, until recently, there's been a, uh, you know, because of the genocide and then because of lack of opportunity, there's been kind of an exodus of um, people leaving their country. And, you know, now more recently, um, the diaspora, you know, is very committed uh, to uh, maintaining the culture and to visiting regularly and to, you know, really preserving um, what is a pretty remarkable culture. I mean, the, the creativity is, is just astonishing. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that, on, on those countries where um, there are not people coming in, but people leaving? Sure. It's the same challenge in many ways. Um, I mean, you have places like Western China or rural Bhutan uh, or even rural Spain where you have – uh, people moving into cities and the, the countryside is emptied out. And that, that threatens culture because the people who used to maintain traditions uh, aren't there. And so I mean, this is a challenge. I, I would say that this is just another aspect of the, of the, uh, the process of globalization. And uh, it, 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 
it presents the same set of challenges. How do you continue those traditions and which ones can you continue and, and, and which ones do you really work hard to continue even as the situation evolves? Right. It's too bad that it has to be, you know, choosing. Um, but um, my last question for you, Michael, is um, best cultural destinations tagline is people are culture and connecting is the destination. And it, of course, it seems to me that your work is also about connection. Um, in closing, could you share a message with listeners about what connection means to you um, and how to achieve it? Well, one of the things that uh, I was fortunate enough to learn working in museums all of these years is that, of course, people learn in different ways. And so I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Uh, some people learn, some people connect by learning something. Some people connect by hearing a story. Some people connect by collaborating on a project or, uh, you know, a, a cultural performance. I, I, I'm, I hesitate to say that there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that. But I would say that the drive to connect is fundamentally human, right? Homo sapiens and all of our hominid ancestors are social creatures. And the ways in which we interact with each other as human beings are culture. It's impossible for them not to be. And, and so whether it's creating a fabulous dinner for people that you love and looking up words together, or whether it's playing music together, uh, where it's really about the delight of uh, creating something together uh, that's ephemeral, or, or whether it's a kind of, um, you know, deeply personal experience narrative that, uh, you know, your own story that you're sharing with people, regardless of how it is that people do it. I, I think that this need to connect is absolutely fundamental in who we are as individuals and, and as a species. Well said. I, I echo that. Michael, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I really appreciate you making the time for this. It's my pleasure.